0: Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. Today, I am joined by Carolyn Harris to discuss the questions you have to ask before the project. Aha. Uh-huh. Carolyn, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jonathan.
0: So, for those who don't know you like I do, could you tell us who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. I am a museum planner. We'll talk a lot about that in a minute, what that means. I have my own business, Carolyn Harris Consulting, which I started about 20 years ago. And what's interesting is having listened to a couple of your episodes already, as a background piece, I, much like our friend Kathleen Bradley, started out as someone who was pre-med. I was going to be a doctor since I was a little, little girl, a good Jewish daughter. And I went all the way through all the coursework and was about to take the MCAT, but had gotten really interested in this whole anthropology thing because I had to have a major that was not uh, medicine and took a left turn at Albuquerque, as it were, and decided at the last minute not to take the MCAT, which my parents were so happy about. And went into the museum field due to a class I took at college that looked at. How the other is represented in different mediums. And I chose museum and decided right then and there that I wanted to work for the Smithsonian. And I went up to DC and I just waited tables and bartended until I got that illustrious entry level job at the Smithsonian. Wait a Smithsonian. minute. You
0: went, you, you, instead of wanting to go into acting, you waited tables and bartended waiting for a chance to get into the Smithsonian.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The big payoff, right? (laughs) Now that,
0: oh, that is awesome. That is, that's such a Well, I'd worked in the
1: service, I'd worked in the service industry for quite some time. And what's interesting about what I do in my job after working in the Smithsonian and I worked at a natural history museum in Atlanta as an exhibit developer, I did marketing at the Smithsonian, I did project management, I did strategic planning, I did special projects, all of that leading up to starting my business, as I said, almost 20 years ago, they all sort of formed my philosophy of how I approach the business and the industry. Also, as a young person, I was I was in sports. Mm. I grew up in the South, played a lot of sports, a lot of team sports. I was what a musician. We,
0: we we have to know.
1: Well, I started out swimming as a kid, but I played a lot of. I was most successful at basketball.
0: Oh wow! So, I, yeah, so. I did not know that. And I think Kathleen, <laughs> yeah. if I remember correctly, Kathleen also got her start. Working for a cultural institution in Atlanta.
1: Yes, we're both from Georgia.
0: Yes. Dang. Okay, <laughs> what's going on here?
1: Yes, she went to Georgia Tech. I went to Emory grad school. Yeah, I've I've discovered I have a lot in common with her through your interview with her. Wow. So. Okay,
0: you got it. You got to get with her and discuss some of those things. You mentioned yeah. that you worked in a in service in the service sector. I imagine that that's. Every time that I've had somebody work for me who used to work in catering or, or run a catering group or was the main person in a restaurant or whatever, I would always hire them toot sweet because their ability to get things done on time and in a charming way was always kind of off the charts. Do you do you credit your time in the service industry with, with some of that philosophy that you created?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I had wonderful training opportunities. I started working in restaurants when I was 14 or 15. As a bus girl, as a hostess, a waitress, then a cocktail waitress, then a bartender, I went up the ranks as I, you know, through my 20s. And definitely had some really, I worked for Bennington's and had wonderful corporate training about service. And also how to walk, what's interesting is they told you, and my best friend who did it with me at the time in high school, we still to this day, like she tells her kids how to do this. They always said, you need to walk through the room and do as many things at once. So organize it in your head about how to achieve five things. Don't go out there and do one thing and come back. You know, organize mm. your tasks so that you're you're hitting all your tables and doing something before you come back to the bus station. And just how to be a good service, at service to others, and to, like you said, have a good demeanor. I mean, that doesn't work always. But also, I think I was in a jazz ensemble. I was a musician. I've been team-oriented my entire life.
0: Good, good. Which, um, which instrument?
1: Uh, electric guitar, Jonathan. Good grief.
0: Okay, we need to yeah. we need to double our we need to triple our time budget for this for the I need you need to come back on the show and talk about service economy <laughs> and museums, how electric guitar playing gets you to become a planner. This is awesome. Yeah. I, I want to know more. But I also want to make sure we have time to talk about these questions that you've you've put out here, which I think are pretty amazing. So and you answered some of my other questions already. So let's just, let's jump into it. You have six of them and the title you've given it here is the questions you have to ask before the project. And I, as always, I have the list, but just like the listeners, I do not know what they all mean. So if you're willing, let's just jump right into the first one. You want to, you want to go for it? Sure. All right. So number one, a master plan comes before design, but what comes before a master plan? Now you've got me wondering here.
1: Yes. Well, I think some of our questions that we'll talk about in a minute answer that question Mm -hmm. a little bit in more detail, but really it's the pre-planning. It's the getting your, your purpose together, your team together. And and we'll talk about what that means in a little bit, but it's really not just running out and saying, oh, I want to build this museum. Let me get a designer and architect and get up some pretty pictures and we'll figure it out later. You know, well, like like I have, I've worked for what I call uh, a lot of civic entrepreneurs. They are folks who are not in the museum field. They want to bring a museum to their community, or maybe they're a small museum. They want to grow and they really have never done a large capital project or they don't even know the museum industry. They they really just have a good idea. They want to bring cultural tourism and from an economic standpoint to their town. They have a collection they want to share or they just have a good idea. And I would say over fifty percent of my clients through the years have fallen into this category. Wow. So there's a lot of education that I provide if I'm allowed, if I get the opportunity to, if they are, even if they're far down the process that I come in, I back it up and start talking about what are the things that we need to make sure we're doing before you go down this journey, that's a very time consuming and expensive journey to develop a museum and put it forth of a master plan. So, so prior to laying out a whole bunch of time and money for a master plan, I tried to get them organized in maybe it's a visioning workshop with a whole bunch of different folks at the table to make some definition around what this mm-hmm. what this entity really is gonna be.
0: Mm-hmm. I, there's two things that are, I think just totally fascinating about this first point. A master plan comes before design, but what comes before a master plan? The first one is, for a lot of people out there, I come from an architectural background. And the assumption is that the master plan is the thing that comes first. Like there isn't anything before a master plan. You joke and say, "Oh, it's a master master plan." It's, no, but I think you you've got a really good answer to that question. The second thing is this phrase "civic" or this this word "civic entrepreneurs." I'm realizing and talking to you, and and you know before the show we were talking, that's a word that I've never heard before. You just introduced me to it, and it describes a whole bunch of people I've met or worked with or helped that I didn't have a word for before. Well,
1: I make up a lot of words, Jonathan, so. (laughs) Yeah, but this one needs to, we need to
0: have a lexicon. We need a special dictionary for you, and it needs to be distributed broadly. Number two, question number two, have you got your stakeholders aligned? What do we mean by aligned, and what do we mean by stakeholders?
1: So, stakeholders typically are considered to be leadership, there might be board members or folks that are going to lead your museum. What's interesting is I feel I've heard another colleague of mine recently said that this this term is sort of getting interrogated, which is, I think every, every term should always be interrogated, Mm -hmm. but basically it could be other people, leaders in the community. It could Uh be folks who are going to help you manifest this idea. It could be folks who have connections to the community in real robust ways. So that they are going to, they're going to be the people who are marching the march with you. They're going to be invested in some fashion, whether it's time or money or expertise or connection, and they're not going to be people who kind a of helicopter in and helicopter out, but stakeholders also, they also can be community members that are going to be advocates for you. They're going to be the voices out in the community. They don't just, not just, oh, these five rich people in my town. Who I'm going to bring on the board so we can like get money to do this thing. You really have to think broadly about what stakeholders mean. Every community is going to look different, and that and, and those folks are going to be different.
0: So I want to back up a minute. Uh, you said a couple things here. One of them is that this term stakeholders getting interrogated. I guess that means people are questioning whether that's the right word to use or if that word has some connotations that we should think about. What what is how how is it being interrogated? What's going on with well, that word?
1: Well, I'd have to defer to. Some of my colleagues who brought this up recently, because I'm just—it was new to me. It was literally the other Mm -hmm. day someone Uh said was sort of one of those terms that maybe the genesis of it has certain uh, history attached to it. it. Also, it might have an off-putting sensibility to some community members. So I'm I'm looking forward to learning more about that myself. Right. I can. But
0: now that you say that, now I'm thinking about. The, the word master plan as right. well, right? <laughs> and yeah, I think it's really, I think it's really fascinating and important to think about the words that we use because they have, words have an impact. The other thing I wanted to ask is you use the word community a bunch just now, and our next point is about community. Can you define in your terms professionally what you mean by community when you're talking to your clients? What What is the client's community? Is that just the people who live nearby or is that the uh, visitors who would come from far and near. What what does community mean to you?
1: I think it's it means a lot of things and it it, it means different things for different areas. It could be an intellectual community. But- if you're if you're a scholarly exercise, it could be the intellectual cohort around an, an activity. It could be the people who live next door, your neighbors, your physical neighbors. It could be people who might be interested in what you're doing for a variety of reasons whether it's from an educational perspective from an exposure to a culture Uh, so i that's that's part of it is defining what your community is and in a small town that can look really different you know when i worked in shelby north carolina the community there was was distinct it was and, and it was not unified around the project i worked on that was part of the work to that that group had to do there were some people who didn't want it was the earl scruggs center for american music of the south and originally there were folks who didn't want to talk about the early days of earl scruggs because he worked in the mills and there was a lot of racism tied around that whole area or when i'm working in somewhere like atlanta georgia which its neighborhoods having lived there and and being for georgia The neighborhoods are very um, cloistered because the traffic is so bad that people don't go from neighborhood to neighborhood that much. Um, So when you're trying to attract, where you have to look at your community. Are you looking at the exurbs? Are you looking at the suburbs? Are you looking at who your who your interested parties are? The school system. Maybe you're doing something on health and you want to involve Grady Hospital. It's it's really for me. I don't have a uh, one term for community. I think that's part of the work is defining that.
0: I get it. Okay. So that don't define it now. The question is, is who is a community? We probably should add that to one of your questions. But your the next question goes to this, number three of our questions you have to ask before the project is, do you know what that community wants? I guess you have to define what the community is. And then you have to say what they want. Why is it important to, to for you to ask before a master plan, do you know what the community for this project wants?
1: I think that in today's day, people are much more attuned to this issue. But for okay. generations, the neblessed oblige of developing a museum was somebody decided what was good for people, right? I mean, if you even look back in the history of museums, how they started, it was bringing art to the masses. I know what's good for you. And that was something I studied early on in my anthropological studies in school. But really, if you want to be successful, and that success is measured in many ways, whether it's impact or revenue or otherwise, you really have to get the voices to the table, who you're trying to reach and, and look at who those voices are. So it might be, if you're trying to hit a tourist audience, get those tourist officials People who know the tourism ministry, get the hotel concierge at the table. They're their boots on the ground. They see who's coming and who's going and what they're doing. If it's educators, if it's uh, the principal of your school, you know, your or your nearest school or the one that's most aligned to your subject matter, if it's an activist in your a community organizer, is it a leader of a religious community? That that has their finger on the pulse of what their what their constituents want and need and do, how they spend their time and what their interests are. So for me, it's getting either by bringing them into a focus group, doing individual interviews, meeting them one on one, going to their houses, and sitting at their table and asking them, "What is it? How would you see museum or cultural activity in your area? What 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 looks like success to you and your group?" What would bring you in the door? What would, what would motivate and what would be the barrier to you of not coming? And those are the kinds of questions that that I try to ask. We we do a lot of different instruments and in in what we call community engagement. And those are all ways of getting a lot of different voices into the process. A lot of museums are developed in a very internal process. It's like the people who want to do it, then they hire their design teams. And maybe they have a curator and that's and they sort of do it and they don't ever really get the other people who are the user groups involved in the in the process. I think today a lot of that has changed, especially since the pandemic and the, the racial reckoning we've all been experiencing. But prior to about five years ago, I was sort of like, wait a second, let's do this. And it would always get cut. I'd always put it in my proposals. It would be the first thing that got cut. And I would just say, no, 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 no. We really, if you really want to do this right, we need to do this. It doesn't cost that much money. It costs some time, but it's, and it should be an iterative process, not just talk to them once they go away. It's get the feedback, bring them in. Cause those also the needs of these different groups evolve and they're dynamic. These projects take years and years and years to do. They
0: do, they do. I mean, I would think, um, to acquire here, but I would think that the time, the extra time that it takes to do the community engagement that you're talking about is well, let's put it another way. If you don't do it, your project might fail.
1: Right. So, exactly. how much
0: time do you need to not fail? Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And today it's a lot. I mean, I think people are on board with that now, but it was an uphill battle for it, especially and, and no offense, but design teams, there are a lot of design teams, and I know your yours is not one of them, but They don't want other voices at the table. It messes things up for them. It gets too muddy. It gets too messy. They get too much divergent feedback. A lot of times I'm the person that's trying to coordinate that feedback. So it's readable and it's digestible and there is direction. It's not just all over the place, but that was for years. That was my struggle is that it was shut down a
0: lot. Speaking as a designer, I can, I totally see where you're coming from. I think a lot of the training of design, like if you come from an architectural background, like where I come from, you'll there's this, I don't know, unspoken or there's this book a lot of architects read, which is like, this is my idea, take it or leave it kind of thing. And if your goal isn't to, your profession isn't therapy someone else pays for, but instead it's, it's a, achieving a goal for somebody, then you have the attitude that good ideas can come from anywhere. And you're desperate for someone to have an even better idea than the one that you have, and then you can all do that, and you can be in service to something greater than everybody. But I understand where it comes from that that other people don't want to be don't want to be threatened by that. I want to backpedal for just a second. You brought up a great phrase, "noblesse oblige," and I wanted to make <laughs> sure I knew what that was, so I checked it on the side. And that is, see if you agree with this definition: the inferred responsibility of privileged people to act with generosity and nobility toward those less privileged. That's just from yeah. a quick internet search. Does that uh, ring a bell? In other words, if you plan a museum for the community without asking the community, that's noblesse oblige. And the other thing I wanted to ask is, do you see a community outreach or just knowing who the community is as sort of the equivalent, uh, what you would have on the commercial side of essentially customer or market research before you make your thingy and you want to sell your thingy You need to ask people, do you need this thingy? What do you think of the thingy, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So number four uh, relates to this is who are the questions that you would ask is who are your financial supporters, both immediate and ongoing, two different kinds.
1: Right. So in that process, in the early pre-planning planning, when I'm looking at who to bring to the table, I always try to include someone who... Has a finger on the pulse of the financial support, so it could be a family foundation, it could be a banker, it could be someone who has has had the experience of funding a cultural project in that area before. So they have experience; they know how people fund things. Because and that's from just like you said, two parts. One is the capital part, which is building said project, and the other is running the project, because many of my clients oftentimes don't think about who is going to run this museum when it opens and how are we going to pay for that. So I start looking at operations from day one. What are the, so, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but who are the people, are you going to have to have fundraising ongoing through the life through, for the next three generations or however long this tragic forever, we we all think it's going to be forever. So who's going to be the capital backers and then who are going to support it through like once it's up and running because that's not the sexy part. The sexy part is the putting my name on a hall or putting my name on an exhibit. Not the sexy part is paying the utility bills and paying the staff and paying for programs. Oftentimes you can get funders for programs because again, that's a little bit more attractive. But but start asking those questions from day one. It's It's not like money just magically appears for any of these projects, and even later it's harder.
0: So a few questions there. You mentioned have someone with their finger on the pulse of financial support at the table during the pre-planning planning. Are you talking about an actual funder, someone who will actually fund the project, or or could it be someone from the town or someone that the the founders know who have funded something before and can at okay. least talk about the fact that you need funding? Are Are both of those good?
1: Yeah. Either or and
0: somebody somebody who's got some experience. Okay, you also mentioned a phrase I caught there: fundraising for life. Which before the show we were just talking about. So I'll ask. I'll phrase this in the form of a question: In order for a museum to survive, does it have to fundraise from for life, sort of continuously, or is there? Yeah, are there museums out there that don't need ongoing fundraising somehow?
1: I think the majority 90% in my experience at least and uh, granted I have a domestic US experience I will caveat all of this to say that I don't work internationally really mm-hmm. so I don't know what the the financing arrangements are internationally but I will say that from my 30 years in the business unless you are even the Smithsonian I mean when I worked at the Smithsonian every year the budget got cut that was federal appropriations and every year the fundraising had to grow and even the state museum. There are some municipal and state museums that will get funding, but that will come and go as the economy comes and goes. So it's very, very rare. There, I did work, I did some work for the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, and they were unusual in that they got 400,000 visitors a year in a, in, in a space that you'd be surprised they could handle they have such a huge revenue that they really had never fundraised until they were starting to look at making some changes and doing some other things. That's incredibly unique. And a lot of museums and their nascent stages and these projects think, well, I don't want to have to fundraise. I want this revenue model. Like when we start looking at revenue models early, I want my revenue model to be plus. And so I don't have to have someone fundraising all the time. It's almost impossible.
0: Got it. Um, Got it
1: as i found.
0: So, just real quick definition, jargon, police: Capital costs versus operational costs for our listeners. Capital costs are all the money that is sunk into creating the thing to begin with. That is money just spent to create the capital, the physical thing. Operational costs is what happens after opening day when you actually have to operate it, and that's different from capital costs. Let me do a quick station identification, then we'll jump to our last two points. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger. This is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. I'm talking with Carolyn Harris about the questions you have to ask before the project. We were just about to start with with got two more. Question five, how many staff can you support and how will they get paid? That sounds pretty right. important.
1: Yes, it's pretty important and people don't think about it. it. It's sort of connected to our last question. I started to mention it a little bit. If you have an organization, and it's a staff of four people, and you feel like you can grow to a staff of 10 people, let's build an experience that can be managed by a staff of 10 people. If you don't start thinking about that from the very beginning, and you build, and someone will have great aspirations, they come up with this great design, Uh a building that's really big, let's say it's expensive to run, and then, then... They're, they're starting to fabricate and build and they've broken ground and then they start looking at the staff and they realize that they need a staff of 25. Now you're really looking at some big fundraising potentially or some revenue drivers that you're going to have to really create. So I always look very, very early and ask those questions. Are, are you going to be a big museum? Are you going to be a small museum? And if you're going to be a small museum, let's build a small museum. And that's been, that could be something that really shocks people because they're so aspirational and there's, and again, it's the sexy part of building the museum. The running the museum is not the sexy part, but that's really what, and also what does that model look like? If you are an organization, one of my favorite things, I know you hear this all the time too, is, oh, I want updatability. I want to be able to update this all the time. I want to design this to be updatable. And then you look and you see, well, they have no operating costs to update it every year. Like, and so I ask the question, do you, do you want to put a hundred thousand dollars every year to update this technology, to update, to have a new film, to have a new interactive? Do you have the staff person that's dedicated to updating this all the time? And and that's a, that could be, and then they'll say no. And I'll say, well, then let's not build it. Why spend the money if you're not, if it's going to sit there
0: almost like if this if the civic entrepreneur is creating a project that is supposed to be a benefit to the community and they know what the community wants then they should realize that it's going there's there has to be a model for how it can support itself otherwise they're not going to create a benefit they're going to create some kind of a liability that's right works backwards precisely yeah. precisely
1: yeah, like what is your programming if you're going to be a very programming centric organization Let's beef up and pay them well, the educators and the programming folks, and not worry about whether you have a chief curator. Like maybe you're not going to need a chief curator because you're not going to be curating things all the time, but you're, gonna in the, in, you're going to be programming and you're going out to the schools, you're bringing the schools in, you're doing community programming, you're, you're a hub for your community. Let's look at that, that. That might be your critical mass
0: of folks. So definition time programming for our dear listener. Of course, here does not refer to computer programming. That refers to having programs, which could be events or lectures, evening activities, or as Caroline was just saying, going out on a bus to schools with with content from your museum or, or whatever it is. And speaking of whatever it is, question number six is a real shocker. I'm glad we're leaving it for last. Question six that you would ask, the questions that you ask for the project is should there even be a museum? I almost want to let some silence happen after that question, but <laughs> let's let's answer the question or, or, or say why you why you asked that. And ha- do you have examples of situations where you actually told your client there's you what's this is great, but you shouldn't have a museum. It should be something else.
1: Yeah, or, or what does that museum look like? I mean, I say the word museum and the idea of a museum is for some, it is a harbinger that their community has arrived. Okay, I felt my 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 city, my little town, ha- finally has a museum. We are we have culture. It's looked at it as this sort of like beacon on a hill. For others, the museum is as a dusty kind of old vestiges of of patriarchal society. So it just depends on your perspective. However. People oftentimes think that they want to that the museum is building a museum is the answer to bringing education or cultural or information to their to their community. Well, it may not be. I've, I do these visioning workshops, like I mentioned, and oftentimes with bringing all these voices to the table, including looking at all the stuff we talked about today, the answer can be no. That there there isn't the capacity for fundraising for this particular idea. There isn't enough interest. One of the ones, and sometimes we come up with a great idea, but it just doesn't go anywhere because they can't get the support behind it. I've, I've worked for a hospital down in Chester, Pennsylvania when I lived in Philadelphia that happens to have a seminary that was a civil war hospital, that then turned into the seminary where Martin Luther King Jr. did his studies. So it has a far reaching history. It's part of the hospital campus. They didn't know what to do with it. It was falling down and they wanted to preserve it. They're like, let's make a museum. So I pulled together all these folks in the community, and this is especially interesting because it literally had railroad tracks that on the other side of the, it wasn't proverbial, it was real. There was was economic disparity around this site. There's a very rich hospital system. At any rate, we came up with this idea that it would be not a museum, It would have interpretation in the site because the site deserved it. But it would actually be a site where people would go have training. It would be a place where businesses would come, where where, um, community groups, maybe family reunions. And it would be training about dealing with other people and sort of using the tenets of Martin Luther King Jr. to bring people together in communication and collaboration and community service. And that was the idea. It wasn't a museum. We threw that out the window. There, there wasn't the support for it. Now that also, they changed, the hospital changed hands. It, it didn't get executed. But that was an idea we said, no, a museum is not the right thing for here. You can still have interpretations that people learn what happened here. I mean, a lot happened here. But but a museum where people trot, trot over here and walk through it and go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wasn't the answer for so that. So when a, a client comes,
0: uh, you, you ask your clients when you, before the project, Should there even be a museum? And sometimes the answer is no.
1: Right. How many, I'm just
0: curious, of of clients that reach out to you, how often is that the answer? um,
1: I've gotten through, uh, and one of my colleagues would laugh because they've done a lot of work with me where it hasn't gone anywhere, but the answer, sometimes the answer isn't like a definitive no. It's a, you thought it was going to be this, but we think this answer, this structure, this distributed model, this would actually be something that was more successful so it's not looking like what you thought would be this brick and mortar museum you can still achieve your goals through this other thing and then I might be out of a job but I've also not created a museum that fails I'll tell you one of my you know we all are formed by our experiences and when I my my museum job I had at Atlanta the museum was 14 million dollars in the hole when I when I started as a young 20-something at this museum it had been taken over by creditors it was a disaster and for a variety of reasons I could share later. But the bottom line is having lived through that experience. They, they got a new CEO. She got it back on her feet, at, at, doing gangbusters and really turned that place around. But having lived through a model that was failing, that really made an impression on me. And having then seen like the museum, right? The museum has gone. We we I was in DC when the museum opened and took great fanfare. I took my mother to the opening and now it's gone. So I don't want to be a part of building something that fails. I really pride myself on my projects being in the black, uh, not just existing and opening with great fanfare, but reaching their reaching their audiences, making an impact and being in the black.
0: That's such a great sentiment and a a good sentiment to end on. Let's do a quick recap. This is wonderful. We have been talking with Carolyn Harris about the questions you have to ask before the project. Number one, a master plan comes before design, but what comes before a master plan? Number two, have you got your stakeholders aligned? Number three, do you know what your community wants? Number four, who are your financial supporters, both immediate and ongoing? Number five, how many staff can you support and how will they get paid? Number six, should there even be a museum? How did I do? Did we cover it?
1: I think we covered it.
0: Carolyn, it's absolutely terrific to have you on the show. I learned, I've been taking notes myself furiously. I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners did too. Thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you. I did want to just give a shout out real quickly to my colleagues at Praxis. I'm a founding member of the Praxis Museum Project Group. And many of the folks you're interviewing for the kickoff of your podcast are from this group. So I just wanted to sort of thank my peers there. We are a network of, of practitioners. We all have different expertise. We also serve the industry. We try to create content like you are, the benefits of collaboration and to serve the museum as a whole. So I just wanted to make sure I uh, put a little plug in for practice.
0: Absolutely. We'll, we'll have all uh, contact information for Praxis and more information in the show notes, like we've had with other folks who are kind enough to kick off this podcast by by doing this. It's an all Praxis all the time podcast <laughs> kickoff. And what? But if if folks want to get in touch with you, I mean, I would just say, well, the first thing is, you should do is the first question you should ask is, can I hire Carolyn Harris? We got to get her in the in the room right away. What's the best way for them to do that? Website or LinkedIn or email? Yes.
1: Um, email. It's uh, let me spell my name because it's yep. a little wonky. Right, it's right. D-A-R-O-L-Y-N-N-E Harris and my Carolyn Harris at Gmail or Carolyn Harris Consulting dot com. So it. or it might be Carolyn Harris.com. I I'd have to actually have to look at it for a while. Okay. But um, and you can Google me, you'll find me on the web if you spell my name correctly. I'm and we will, those, we will put
0: those we'll put those links in the show notes show notes as well for everybody. All right. That's all for this episode. I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.